This is Campus Voices. Issues, news, and notes from the campus of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. A public affairs presentation of 90.3 KRNU. Good morning and welcome to Campus Voices. I'm Rick Alloway, and as always, I thank you for your time this Sunday morning. Our guest on Campus Voices is a graduate of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln back in the 2004 era. Tyler Reaver is the creative director at Charity Water, which is a nonprofit organization that, as they say, uses data and storytelling to connect donors to their impact and dream up new ways to think about sustainability in the water sector. Tyler returned to the campus to give the E.N. Thompson Forum on World Issues on November 7th, and he joins us before he heads back out of town to get caught up a little bit and uh, return to the old alma mater. What's it feel like to walk back into the building after a number of years? It feels brand new. This building has transformed since the last time I was here, and it's remarkable uh, because it's all about experience now, and I think that's such a crucial part of the college uh, education is getting to to play around and fail and get messy and uh, just experiment a lot. So it makes me want to come back to school is the is the short answer. And you will always be welcome. Now, you studied <laughs> both advertising and journalism here as an undergraduate. That's what true. was the, the deciding factor on splitting your time between those two disciplines? Uh, I, I think I loved the the communication aspect of journalism, the, the storytelling, um, making stories real for people trying to paint a picture through words, but the advertising portion felt more like creative problem solving. And the more that I got into that, um, those activities just felt the most satisfying to come up with really unique ideas or a new approach. Um, Yeah, the more I explored in advertising, the more I was sold. Before you came to UNL, uh, you were growing up in Miller, correct? Yeah, Yeah. that's right. Um, What was your goal career-wise as a a young guy before before you came to Lincoln? Great question. I think there was a photography piece uh, that existed for a lot of the college era. I was uh, participating in photography in the high school newspaper, um, a lot of art classes, and then some writing. Uh, I didn't think that writing was really a career option, but I loved uh, that piece of it. And then maybe a tiny bit of me that wanted to be on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> There's still time. They, could, yes, yeah. they went through a lot of cast members this last year, so I'd, I'd keep your options open on that. Um, you certainly used your advertising coursework immediately upon graduation, worked for a Lincoln Advertising Firm, and then gradually moved to the Pacific Northwest. But uh, what was it about the, the Northwest that kind of grabbed your attention as a, as a place to relocate, other than the fact it's just ridiculously beautiful? Yeah, the ridiculously beautiful part was a strong sell. I... I knew there was a lot of opportunity from an agency perspective in the Pacific Northwest and in Portland in particular. I had a bunch of friends at Wyden and Kennedy, and I just had it in my mind that it was going to be a real easy jump from where I was in Lincoln to Wyden and Kennedy um, or, or, or any agency. I moved in 2009, which was the height of a recession, and, uh, and it ended up being a little bit more challenging than I thought. Well, you had you landed with a great firm and did a lot of great content there, um, and eventually even winding up working for places like or working for accounts like Nike. But then four years later, you decided to make the jump out of the for-profit business into the nonprofit sector. What was it about the nonprofit that sort of kind of got in your ear and got you thinking about making the switch? <laughs> well, the crazy part, uh, I had it wasn't on my radar at all. I had uh, come back to Lincoln and made a, a really ridiculous video with a friend of mine that was just. Uh, 
a prompt for people to get to know their neighbors. Nobody knows the people they live next to anymore. We thought it was ridiculous, and we wrote this funny script, and we recruited a bunch of people to shoot this video. So it was just like a backyard project, and somehow that reached someone at Charity Water. Uh, and the creative director at the time sent me an email and she said, you don't know who I am, but I was wondering if you want to move to New York and work at Charity Water. So it truly hadn't been something I had considered. Um, traveled out and met the team. And the mission, the idea of bringing clean water to every person on the planet felt really remarkable. But the vision of the organization, this idea that we could reinvent charity and challenge the way that it's been done in the past or try to create a greater sense of connection to impact, uh, be more transparent and inspire people to expect a world that is more generous. That that felt like an awesome thing to be part of. So let's back up just a smidge. And you've sort of given us the, the thumbnail um, shot of what Charity Water is about. But for someone that says, I've never heard of this organization, what's the elevator speech on what they're trying to do? Yeah, so Charity Water is a fundraising organization. We are working to bring clean water to every person on the planet. Uh, and we do it through a group of local partners around the world. So we are we're specifically fundraising the money and giving it to local experts uh, who are serving their own people and providing really unique and sustainable solutions that are going to work. And it's different everywhere. Rural uh, Ethiopia is very different from rural Cambodia and rural Madagascar. Um, so it's really important that we have these local partner teams who are doing the work, uh, and we're, we're just trying to empower them to do more. The organization's mission statement says that it um, uses data and storytelling to connect donors to their impact. What does that mean to connect them to their impact? What, what does that get after? Yeah, at the start of the organization, it was really important to us that we're trying to make it feel, for, for people who are giving money, like their money's not just going into a black hole. Uh, they don't know what they're funding specifically, so we committed to proving every single project on our website with photos and GPS coordinates. We started developing new technology, this remote sensor technology, so you can put a box inside of a, a well that's monitoring the amount of water that's flowing and transmitting data back to our partners, so if something happens or changes, they can send somebody to go fix it. Uh, but it also starts to predict behavior in the well, so maybe we can send somebody before it needs a repair. So we're trying to create a greater sense of accountability uh, for sustainable projects around the world. And uh, a lot of organizations don't think that way, or, or you maybe have small uh, church groups and people who come in and fund a project without thinking about what happens after we leave. And so it's really important to us that we're finding new ways to um, promote that sense of sustainability for the future and, and maybe hold the entire water sector a little bit more accountable for the projects that they're funding. I noticed that it says the organization is rooted in innovation and transparency. The first one of those terms seems self-evident to me and why you would say that, but the transparency term seems like an interesting one to throw in there as part of your mission statement. What, why does the organization feel the need to stress that word? Yeah, I, in the beginning, so much of it was about trust, we were coming into uh, an environment where we knew 42% of Americans at the time didn't trust charity. 70% of people thought charities mismanage the money, and that's probably just a few bad actors, but that was a sense of, of the charity world. So we thought if we can be really transparent, really honest, maintain a lot of integrity, take people on a journey, and, and when we fail, we share that failure and let people be part of the ride. So when we succeed, it's even sweeter. Uh, but build trust through transparency, essentially, and, and try to make people feel like 
they can be powerful in solving this problem and want to come back and keep working to do more. How old is the organization? Uh, been around since 2006. We're about okay. 16 years old. Okay. And how many folks are actively either employed or, or involved one way or the other here in the, in the States without the, thinking about all your partners around the world? Yeah. In the state, our core team is about 105 people. And we're, we're probably in 35 states. We've gone completely remote. Uh, so we're, we're spread all over the United States. Did the, um, since you mentioned you're, you're pretty much remote, so would, that would lead me to think COVID probably didn't slam the door quite as hard on you as it might have on some other organizations? I think that's true. We went, we went remote maybe in, a, in an effort to save ourselves. We had a beautiful, humongous uh, office space, a headquarters in Tribeca in New York City, and had worked out an incredible deal with our landlord, somebody who just believed deeply in the work that we were doing and was giving us uh, our, our, our office space at a fraction of the cost. But it was still probably a million dollars a year. We have a, a group of donors who fund all of our operating costs. So that, that doesn't impact the money that's going to water. 100% of the money we raise from the public goes to clean water. But on the operations side, a million dollars, when nobody's allowed to go to the office, feels like some money you would love to have back. And if it means that we don't have to reduce salaries or lose some staff, uh, it felt like a no-brainer. You define your job with uh, Charity Water as being that of a storyteller. Um, what makes storytelling so appealing? I'm obviously your, your, your undergraduate background prepared mm-hmm. you for that. But what makes that so effective in service to this organization? It's it's one of my favorite parts of the job. I have the incredible privilege of traveling around the world and, and meeting our local partners and the communities that they're serving. And it's just not an experience that we can give to everybody. In a perfect world, everybody would get to make that trip and, and go see the impact and sit with our partners and have dinner and ask questions and just be inspired by all of these different people. Uh, and storytelling is really the best way to try to make it real for our community. Um, and it's, it's the good and the bad, you know, going back to the trust piece, it's not just the shiny part of the story. It's the hard parts, uh, the parts that I'm impressed with at the end of the day, or, you know, even my stomach sickness stories. We're just trying to make this real uh, for our audience so they feel like they're a part of it. Storytelling would appear to be, at least in, in the fashion that you're using it, a much more um, individual, almost a one-on-one sort of thing, as opposed to some of the national public service campaigns and things that we see. Has that proven to be, do you think, more effective for you, telling these individual country-by-country, one-on-one stories to individual donors? Yeah, I do. I think it, it, it makes people feel a little closer to a very specific piece of impact. You know, it makes tangible a specific solution, a biosand filter or a well or how we're, how one woman is using the time that she got back um, to create new opportunities for herself. So these, these sort of one-to-one stories almost feel more personal. So how do you find these? Because you see you have partners all around the world. How do you find a compelling story, and how do you as a storyteller say, uh, this is one we need to really share? <laughs> this is the hardest part. We go into a community with very little idea of what the story is going to be, and we may have... A hope we know we're going to visit a community that doesn't have access to clean water today but they might six months from now or we know that we're in a community that got clean water two and a half years ago so this is maybe what we might see but you don't know who you're going to meet and what it's going to look like so uh, we thanks to our local partners we have a lot of groundwork that's done before we get there but we spend the first 
day or two just absorbing information and asking questions and meeting people and trying to identify characters for our story. And it is, the first day is always insanely stressful because you just feel like we have such little time here and I don't think it's going to come together. Um, but it always does. And inevitably, it's the thing at the end of the day that you're most excited to talk about. You're like, can you believe that one person said this? I think that's our story. And, and we brainstorm at the end of the day together as a team. And then next day we hit the ground running. So you actually have had, I know you, you define it as, as the wonderful opportunity to travel all around the world. What have been out of, and I don't want to say what's the most compelling story you've seen, but give us an example of one that really touched your heart where you you learned something and you found yourself saying, well, I had no idea that this was going on. Yeah, we a really recent trip um, for me, we went to Nepal. We're in western Nepal, really remote part of the country and on the side of a mountain. And uh, a lot of these families are walking to a natural spring source to collect water. I, I had not heard this before, but in Nepal, many of the women, it's a burden that falls specifically on, on women and, and children, but many of the women were getting up at three in the morning to go collect water because they wanted to get that responsibility done before they started their other chores. So you had stories from women who were maybe spending four hours, two hours in the middle of the night in the dark going to collect water. We met one woman in particular, her name was Bal Kumari, and she talked about how terrifying it was. And she told a story, a ghost story, about a time that she was walking and she was by herself and she was in the dark and she thought she saw children on the path ahead of her. And she rounded the corner and they were gone. And then she saw a man on a horse and then the man was gone. We had goosebumps. I was like, I've never heard a ghost story in, in while we're interviewing people. Uh, it was really eerie, but she talked about the fear of walking in the dark to go collect water every day. Today, she has a tap stand right outside her home and she can collect water whenever she needs it. And she so proudly shared that she gets to sleep in every day. And I just, I hadn't thought about the fact that you would go from getting up at three in the morning every night to proudly sleeping in until the sun comes up. And that just, like, who doesn't want to give that to somebody? I was going to say, I'll bet her definition of sleeping in doesn't quite match ours. Exactly. In yeah. <laughs> so you find these incredible stories of, of, in many cases, human suffering and human struggle to try to provide something as basic as clean water. When you return to New York, what do you do with that? How do you, how do you say, okay, we've got all this great footage and this great story. Where does it go from there? Yeah, I mean, that's the part we try to plan out in advance. We maybe have a creative brief. We know we're putting together a video component for this campaign, and we need a bunch of photo assets. We kind of have a, a map for where we're going to use the content. But you come back, and you're translating the footage, and we're getting a sort of a loose translation in real time. So the actual translation might be slightly different, and that may change the piece. Um, but you start to put the content together, and maybe that dictates that this video should really be the hero of the campaign or... We could use this 60 seconds and promote this campaign in a totally different way, tease the story a bit. Uh, so as you start to put the content together, it kind of the map sort of expands. And the, the actual connection to donors, how is that established? Um, from the, the story? Yeah, yeah. yeah. What's, what's been the most effective for you? Mm, I think I love these experiences where we, where we really intentional create a landing page, uh, a, a narrative flow, or some sort of digital experience we did um, 
couple years ago, we created a quiz that was called Someone Like You. And it's this really simple three-question quiz where you, you tell us your age so we can match you with somebody who's roughly your age, uh, how you like to spend your time, and what's the most important thing to you in your life. And then we had spent weeks in this community in Ethiopia and interviewed over 400 people, everybody over the age of four, and created this database of stories about people and how they were impacted by not having access to clean water. And then in this quiz, we could take your information and pair you with the person who is most like you. So you get this really personal perspective of what your life might look like if you lived here. Um, and those, those are just the most, the most fun and the most powerful because it allows you to really uh, reflect and, and make it personal. As somebody growing up in Millard and, and going to school at UNL and spending a lot of time in the Midwest and then the Pacific Northwest, which is you know, reasonably affluent compared to a lot of other places, what must it have been like for you the first couple of times you went overseas and saw the abject poverty, the lack of water, the struggle just to get from day to day that you encountered there? What was the impression that made on you? Yeah, I think the the first trip is really hard. You're, you're, you're in disbelief and... You're just absorbing and processing so much information. The, the things that people have in their homes and uh, the trash on the ground in major cities and how people spend their time or their money in urban areas versus rural areas. And it, and it is really hard. Um, but I think maybe by the second trip, you start to notice the things that are really beautiful uh, instead. And especially in the rural communities, it's a simpler life. But in some ways, it's really enviable. It's... Uh, it, it reveals how much we complicate our lives or make ourselves busier than we need to be or worry about too many things. We give ourselves too many things to worry about. So now I'm to a point where I come home and I'm a little sad to be back. It's, it's hard to adjust. I had the, uh, the great honor to uh, spend some time teaching in Ethiopia myself wow, about a decade okay. ago. I taught our intro to mass comm course that we teach here that you took as an undergraduate. Mm-hmm. I taught that to Ethiopian journalists at the University oh of Addis Ababa. And you're absolutely right that uh, when you are expecting one kind of lifestyle and then you see how cheerful people are and how they're running up to you to want to shake hands or give you a hug and they're so thrilled you're there and... Um, I, I got a, a message when I got back from one of the, the young folks that we'd uh, spent time with saying, every day I pray for you. And oh. I thought, he's praying for me, having seen the the, uh, the hard scrabble life that he and his family had living out of a wood hut, basically, and, and uh, struggling for food. But you're right that they they are so, in many cases, very, very cheerful about their lot in life. And there's so many things we could do to make life just a little bit easier to let them sleep in a little longer. Yeah. 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 We have moments where we come into a community and everybody there comes to greet us. It's like the honor of having guests. Um, and, and we've been given places to stay in communities and these big welcome ceremonies with music and dancing. And uh, one of the most powerful experiences for me, I was leaving a community that we had spent a week in, uh, in Malawi, and we had seen a drilling rig arrive. Clean water came to the surface, and this whole community had been anticipating this moment for a lifetime. Uh, So we got to be part of this really special experience and truly connected with so many families over the course of this week. But we're leaving, and there's a group of women who are singing and clapping behind the car, and I ask our driver, well, what are they singing? And he's like, oh, well, it's just a, it's just a little song. They're saying, uh, you are like morning dew because you are here and you are beautiful 
and now you are gone. Oh my and goodness. It, it's moments like that where it's to, it's so simple, but it's it's poetic and even the welcome ceremony piece to to be so excited that today we have company. Uh, there's so much of it that just makes me oh, love my job. Did the process cuz I know you have uh, a child at home in New York. Did that did having uh, a child change in any degree what you thought about the importance of your job now that you're looking ahead to future generations yourself? Absolutely. I I, I mean I've been on 21 different trips with Charity Water, and I think one of the really cool parts is your perspective changes based on what's going on in your life. I got married, and I traveled to the field, and suddenly I'm looking at relationships in a different way. And then I have a son, and he gets older, and you're seeing babies, and you're seeing two-year-olds, and all of it just is personal in a different way. We went to Zimbabwe this summer, and my grandmother had just passed away, and my profound connection with the older people that I was talking to felt so different. So I, I think it's a really unique part of the job. That what's happening in your life can shape the stories you end up telling. The work that uh, Charity Water does is primarily overseas, I know, but what attitudes do Americans themselves have to rethink about our, our water use? I know uh, Nebraska Public Media did a documentary here a couple of years ago where they, they they opined that water was going to be the fundamental crisis of our own existence over the next few decades. Uh, what do you see that we need to work on domestically? It's a great question. I do think there's a conservation piece that we should be talking about. And then the other piece, maybe the more important piece, is how do we create water? We're going to have to pull water out of the air or start repurposing rainwater. We're going to have to get creative. And, and I don't know of anybody who's addressing that problem yet. And a lot of people aren't talking about it. But I do have real concerns that we might be fighting over water uh, in this country and many other countries around the world. Has the political climate around the world made this job tougher? Have, have things changed in the nine-plus years that you've been there? Oh, that's interesting, too. I I think we get—it's it's amazing how many people follow our political situation, what's happening in our country. I've had conversations with people who know exactly where they were on 9-11 and had the same eerie moment that we did. So people are really in tune with what's happening in the United States— I don't know that it's swayed any opinions, but I certainly get more questions about it. Uh, and it's, it's, it's interesting. I think it's changed uh, the relationship more with our partners than anything. Looking back on your time here in COJMC, do, uh, what do you think the, or how do you think the skills that you learned here in the sort of dual majors you were pursuing has uh, set you up well to do what you're doing now? Ooh, I think um, I see all of these different parts of my career today that came from little moments. So working uh, at the Daily Nebraskan as a photographer, um, spending Friday nights photoshopping my face onto movie posters, working at Husker Vision and thinking about these live broadcast moments or silly video moments, um, the ad club, you know, just tons of different experiences that ended up paving the way. I studied advertising thinking I wanted to be a designer and got into the real world and said, oh, I, I should be writing. I love writing. And and it just continued to evolve. When I got into the advertising space, it was early uh, social media era. So so brands were just getting into the space, and Red Bull was one of our early clients. And they basically said, we don't know if this is going to work, but just make it fun for people. And 
had the advantage of just getting to go out there and create valuable content for Red Bull's audience, which was not a lot of brands think that way. Um, but my role sort of shifted from copywriting into content creation. Uh, and that's and so much of that is applicable to what I'm doing now. I know this is not uh, your first visit back to campus since you left. I know you did a Husker talk a few years ago and things along that line. But I've got to think it must have been kind of cool and kind of special to have the the current dean of your college introduce you on the stage of the lead center uh, during your talk on the 7th. It, uh, unbelievably surreal. And I, I have felt so giddy and grateful this whole week. We, we came to the Nebraska game on last weekend and walked by the lead center and my name was on the sign. I didn't know that that was going to happen. I was with my family and everybody just froze in place like, are you kidding me? <laughs> um, so that part has just been just unbelievably surreal. But it feels special because, especially having come from this university, I know I am where I am because of the foundation that I've had in classrooms and through professors and through coworkers and people who've pushed me and challenged me. And getting to have that moment on that stage is not just about me. It's about all these other people who played a role in my life. So that, that certainly makes it extra special. Well, since you've been reflecting backward in that moment, let's reflect ahead a little bit. If there are other young people that are, um, and that's running, just getting ready to graduate and jumping off into that first great big full-time job, what would you suggest to those folks who also want to pursue a future in nonprofits and in the kind of charity work that you're doing? What's the reward, and how do you suggest that they take that first step to get there? I think there's a really exciting opportunity in the nonprofit space right now, it feels like a lot of the nonprofits that I know are starting to see the value in brand and story and marketing, and they're starting to invest in it. And when I started at Charity Wire, it was hard. We had a $0 marketing budget, and we were very lucky to have relationships at Instagram and Facebook and people who donated ad space and all kinds of things, but not a lot of other orgs had that. And it's, it's really hard to prove the value of it when you don't have a budget to to demonstrate. So it took time, Charity Water even dipping a toe in, and then $50,000 turns into $200,000, turns into a couple million dollars. So I think other orgs are starting to see that, and there's just more and more opportunity for creatives and storytellers and content creators to go be part of nonprofits in a way that didn't exist before. So I've talked to a few students this week who, who are excited about it. And I was like, that's great because I think supply is low in the, in the people who are showing up for it and demand is high. I think it's the perfect time. So is there a misconception about what uh, charities in general do? Do you think that, that if you can convey to people, look, this is storytelling. These are the foundations of the things you're learning in these courses just applied on a slightly different platform? Yeah, so much of even my advertising experience is applicable. We're still telling stories and trying to inspire people to take action in the same way that Nike is trying to establish brand loyalty, Charity Water is trying to establish brand loyalty, the way Lululemon is trying to create brand awareness, we're thinking the same way. So you, you know, you've, you've sort of changed it from a, uh, we're just issuing money out to local partners or organizations that are doing this good in the world to, uh, it's really about building momentum and telling stories and getting people excited. So much of it is about brand. And there's so much more to do. You've done over 91,000 projects, or the, the organization has, reaching close to 15 million people so far. What's next? Where do you see the organization heading? 
we have a vision for uh, doing what we did in the first 15 years in the next five. And I think, I think it can be even bigger. I mean, we know how to solve this problem in our lifetime. We know how to scale every aspect of what we're doing. There is no shortage of work to do. It is just a matter of getting people to care and to get, to get involved. How about from a personal standpoint? Are you happy, fulfilled, rewarded where you are, or do you think there's something else along the line coming for you at some point? Uh, it, it, my wife and I both work at Charity Water, uh, so there is a conversation about two nonprofit salaries in one house, and what are we doing here? But neither of us want to leave. I, I, neither of us can imagine being in a place where you're as proud of the work you're doing, as proud of the people you're working with, um, and just honored to come to work every day. So it's it's really hard to give that up. I think anybody that says uh, it's an honor to come to work every day has got a pretty good gig yeah, at that point. No doubt. The title of your presentation was The Craziest Thing We Can Do Is Nothing. I have an, an idea I know where that came from, but, but what was the genesis of that as a title for your presentation? You know, <clears throat> that, came, um, that came up as a tagline to an ad that I wrote years ago that was about our supporters, our fundraisers, who were doing seemingly crazy things to raise money because they cared so much. It was embarrassing things like swimming naked across the San Francisco Bay because I raised $30,000, biking across the country, selling lemonade in the rain. So you had all these people doing things that felt admirable or embarrassing or funny or creative. And the, the, the last line of that ad was, the craziest thing we can do is nothing. It became a little bit of a mantra for the organization, but the more that I've thought about it, the more it becomes a little reflective around our willingness to take action and and our choice to care. And we have a lot of competing priorities. We have a lot of competing need in the world. And we have no shortage of other places to invest our attention and distract ourselves or be numb to what's happening around the world. And in that sense, the craziest thing we can do is nothing is really about just deciding not to care. It's about it's about choosing to invest in the world you want to live in. Well, we're thrilled that you've chosen to invest some of your time by coming back to your alma mater and speaking at the E.N. Thompson Forum and spending time with our students here in the College of Journalism and Mass Communications. It means a lot to us to have you back home. Oh, it means even more to me. Truly an honor. Appreciate your time today. Our guest on Campus Voices has been Tyler Reaver, the creative director of Charity Water, based in New York City. Tyler, thank you for your time, and thank you to all of you at home for listening in. I'm Rick Alloway. This has been Campus Voices. And as always, I thank you for your time on this Sunday morning. This has been Campus Voices, issues, news, and notes from the campus of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. To comment on this program, call 402-472-3054 or email to krnu at unl.edu. Campus Voices is a public affairs presentation of 90.3 KRNU, Lincoln. Lincoln.